Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Futurati podcast. Today we're interviewing Olu Amusan, who is an engineer, a futurist, and an evangelist for artificial intelligence. Thanks for being here, Olu. My pleasure. It's great to be here. So you describe yourself as an evangelist for AI, and I thought I'd start by asking you exactly what that means. So what does an evangelist for AI do, and why does AI need one? My background is in computer science, and it's a field where several people are sort of like, you know, scared to get into. Uh, because of programming and engineering. And I feel that to be able to get the true value of what computer science should bring for the world, there has to be someone who is able to bridge the gap between the real applications of computer science in business and its usefulness for humanity and the actual engineering of it. Most times there are just tons and tons of academic papers that have been read, that have been written and produced every year without actually the concepts being taken without the concepts being taken into production. You know, so as an artificial intelligence evangelist, um, my work started when I identified a rising surge of digitalization and how um, many, many companies, you know, like Google and Microsoft and all of these other companies are becoming the, the holy grail of this amazing technology without people ordinary people actually understanding it. And I felt this will be a massive opportunity to be able to help humanity appreciate the value of engineering. Um, and, and that's what I've been doing. So there's a lot of people saying we should be scared of this. AI is going to turn into the evil over, overlord of humanity. It's going to take over and, uh, and we're all doomed. Um, how do you respond to those people? Well, in 2018 and 2019, I went around about seven cities to basically run sessions about why you shouldn't fear super intelligent AI. Um, the way one of uh, the progenitors of artificial intelligence, uh, Andrew Ning, puts it, is that we are literally being scared of overpopulation in Mars when we have not even gotten to Mars yet. So in the same way, uh, people have a legitimate, you know, concern when they say we should be scared of AI. The question, however, is that this fear is several hundreds of years away. And the way I look at it is, while it is okay to begin to discuss it so that we can really understand the ethics and governance of artificial intelligence, we will be actually shooting ourselves in the foot and this, we would actually be deterring ourselves from the benefit if we consume ourselves with the fear of artificial intelligence. The other thing I say every time when people say machines could kill us all is we can pull the plug. Yeah. Well, I, I always say that uh, uh, the biggest thing to fear about AI is devious people. Um, and AI is just another tool, just like every other tool out there. And people are going to figure out how to use it the wrong way and use it against us. And, and so I, I think there's a legitimate fear there, but I mean, we should be scared of the bad guys, I guess. I always say that, you see, 
once you educate people around the potential fear of anything, you are actually creating a fair number of people who will be interested in advancing that area of learning for the good of humanity. And um, you will be creating the right amount of, um, of guards, of custodians, who will be making sure that the few Marahudas do not actually get to destroy us all. So there are a couple of different related issues that you raise there. And one of them is the possibility that artificial intelligence, and in particular, artificial superintelligence, is rather a long way off. And the other is that there are these thorny ethical conditions that, or these, these thorny ethical questions around how we're going to build these systems such that the effects are good and not bad. So I wanted to start with asking your opinion about the possibility of, of slow versus fast takeoffs. And this is actually something that I discussed with Robin Hansen when I interviewed him years ago. He's a proponent of the slow takeoff, that it will take hundreds of years for us to get anything that's greater than human intelligence. But there's this whole strain of thought in artificial intelligence that says that actually it's it's possible or at least conceivable that recursive self-improvement could mean that over the course of a month or a week or a year some much shorter amount of time we could we could go from an algorithm that's you know subhuman intelligence to greater than human intelligence so it sounds like you come down on the slow takeoff side and i, I wondered if you might outline the reasons for your thinking that yeah i mean look there, there we need to be able to separate the hype from the real thing and um, we must be able to, there is there's some form of modesty for those who are practitioners of artificial intelligence to be able to see that we're several decades away from recursive self-improvement. And even if we do very well with like quantum computing powers today, and we're able to solve like some of the biggest encryptions in just a minute, there are still things like the complexity of how we blink our eyes or how a child learns or how uh, we're able to hold a tender baby versus holding a metal that we are still unable to be able to, you know, communicate in reinforcement learning to, to robots. And despite the advancements you see, like with organizations like Boston Dynamics and all of that, we're still really, really clear that uh, superhuman intelligence, the kind of intelligence that human have is still several, is still several decades away. And, um, uh, the, the, the last decade, uh, success of, that we've seen in deep learning, you know, has given us some form of confidence. But I would say that that confidence isn't enough to be able to say that real quickly we'll be able to take AI to the point of human intelligence. Uh, the, the most advancements we have today in, um, in, in um, um, health, healthcare are still mostly supervised learning, you know, and um, uh, as we continue to have improved storage capacity, improved compute power, yes, we will get closer. And as we get closer, we should really have these genuine conversations around the ethics and governance of artificial intelligence. Well, I don't see this overnight spring that some, you know, uh, very, very brilliant professionals also believe would happen. I see it as something that will be uh, much more uh, gradual over the next um, uh, five to 10 decades. Uh, sometimes we can't even put a specific time to it. Yeah. Um, I, I've often said that the next big thing was always started 25 years ago. Um, and that it takes a long time for things to kind of work their way up the curve. Um, <clears throat> that, that said, uh, like quantum computing, as an example, was started more than 25 years ago. Uh, that was that was a, a big deal in the in the 1980s, but it actually had two false starts, if you will, before 
uh, yeah, we really started getting something that was uh, worth really worthwhile to invest in. And so now we're, we're actually seeing some, some good measurable results. But with, with quantum computing, there's, there's a lot of talk about quantum AI. Uh, is that a real thing? And um, uh, because quantum computing works vastly different than traditional computing, and so quantum AI, um, I, I'm not sure if we're mixing metaphors there. Or, um, it, it, what, what's your thoughts on that term? I mean, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the context that I've heard about quantum AI, and um, it, it's just, you know, a very optimistic engineers thinking about, you know, the, um, the possibilities, you know, we're like AI is automation on steroids. And so we're like, can we also imagine, you know, AI that is quantum? And that's like steroids on steroids on steroids on steroids beyond what we can ever imagine. And I would say that if we would even be able to get as close as we want to, to artificial general intelligence in the next foreseeable decade, say in the lifetime of my own children, then quantum computing will play a very significant role in making all of that uh, possible. You know, so I, I look forward to being able to see the realistic, you know, um, we, we keep saying that artificial intelligence is going to have the same effect that electricity had. And just like the 25 years takeoff you described, deep learning has been discussed in circles since like the late 50s, but we just couldn't get there because we didn't have enough compute power. So I am hoping that in the as in the proclamations that IBM and Google have made about their quantum computing power, <laughs> that truly within the within the 2030s, uh, if they make some real advancements in quantum computing, break super encryptions in a very in nanoseconds, perhaps we can begin to talk about uh, quantum AI. Maybe down the line, we would have taken the possibilities of traditional AI to a good point, and then we'll begin to accept the realities of a possible quantum AI. Yeah, so you mentioned artificial general intelligence, and I wanted to know if you have a good definition for general intelligence, and if you might say a few words about how AGI is different from the narrow AIs that we have today. So today, um, AI systems are considered specialists because they've been developed to focus on only a specific domain, you know, and what we refer to as artificial general intelligence is the kind of AI that is near human intelligence, that essentially you can, what you've seen in the science fiction where this AI can do nearly everything. Today, we probably create this algorithm that is good at detecting cancer cells or at predicting the stock market or at being able to uh, predict, you know, uh, whether a car is going to, you know, eat uh, a barrier, like in autonomous vehicles. So we've succeeded in building these specialist systems that continue to get improved. But putting all of that together requires additional, like, huge computational power, a vast amount of data that we've never imagined before, and being able to apply it in contexts that are global rather than uh, sort of like, to to use the metaphor again, narrow. Okay, so... I think that's an interesting question. One possibility is that artificial general intelligence will come as a result of algorithmic improvements. And so it might not actually take that much more compute power or even that much more data because human infants learn from, you know, no shot or few shot or one shot examples. They see something done one time or not very many times and they're able to generalize across a broad range of classes. And another possibility is that 
we'll, we will just continue to advance the current sets of architectures that we have, the, the deep neural networks and the reinforcement learning agents, which really aren't that smart, but if you've got big enough computers and enough data, you can get them a long way. So how do you feel about these two different possibilities and which do you think is more likely to lead to general intelligence? Well, I, I quite agree with you that algorithmic improvements can take us closer. What I do not agree with is that we would need um, lesser amount of data because essentially um, a, a, an algorithm that's been trained to identify cancer cells might not, for example, be able to deliver to us, um, you know, uh, improved learning pathways in education, you know, and so because of the, you know, the, the type of data that it's been trained on and all of that. So I do believe that we might be able to get some point where uh, true algorithmic improvement be used with a vastly improved, you know, availability in data across like several domains around the world. Because what you're talking about is a kind of artificial intelligence that can, you know, super, you know, pretty much process whatever solution you are considering and then still be able to, you know, uh, work effectively in a self-driving car and then still go on and be able to like uh, fight in wars and then, you know, still be able, you know, essentially you're thinking about in the, in the, in the different expressions of Hollywood, you know, they're uh, super intelligent AI that can launch nuclear weapons as well as, you know, take care of, you know, uh, traffic lights in a city. So to, to get to that point really is, is much more bigger than just um, efforts around improving pockets of algorithms here and there. That's, that's what I think. Yeah. Um, well, one of the, the, the hot topics that we're moving into is, is, autonomous transportation. And I understand you've been, you've been looking heavily at that. And uh, um, I had done some, uh, some rough math on the, the number of cars it would take to actually displace uh, vehicles on the road today. <clears throat> and it, it, the math worked out to show that if we had just four, a little over four million vehicles on the road that were autonomous vehicles, um, that could re displace 50% of our commuter traffic today in, in the United States. Now, um, that's a really low number, and that presumes that every single car is in the right place at the right time when somebody wants a car, um, which is, is highly, highly unlikely. And so the, the actual number is probably several multiples of that number to displace 50%. But um, it, can you talk a little bit about the, the, the huge problem set that's involved in, in uh, kind of teaching AI to drive us to places and get us to the right places at the right time? Yeah, I mean, one of the, as you've said, it's, it's a very interesting subject area for me particularly. Um, and the recently I wrote an article about um, moving towards gener artificial general intelligence in autonomous vehicles, you know, and it gave me the opportunity to be able to see the different stages, you know, that we're currently sort of like experiencing today. And the problem sets have actually, you know, stemmed from being able to take mainstream auto manufacturers through the different sort of like gradients in, you know, autonomous vehicle experiences from, you know, hands off to, uh, from eyes off to hands off to mind off entirely. And we don't even have like any of the vehicles right now um, 
that we can completely say that it's completely mind off where uh, the owner can take a nap or, you know, can completely just take their minds away. Um, one of the key issues first is our sensor technologies are still under a very serious questioning. There are concerns around algorithmic bias in the way we've programmed our computer vision APIs in terms of whether or not they recognize people of color very well. And there are also serious concerns around um, safety and uh, public uh, confidence, you know, that might actually prove very much more dangerous than um, algorithmic uh, setbacks. Because even if we got the algorithms perfectly and public confidence doesn't increase in the way you should, we might still be several years away from having this adoption widespread the way it's supposed to. The, the advantages are, they are, they are huge. And it's not really the fact that people do not understand the advantage of having self-driving cars that can coordinate, that is the issue. It is the fact that like every other technology that involves human lives, you know, people have to pay a little more attention to interpreting their, um, the way the technology actually works. Unfortunately, deep learning and computer vision happens, or even AI as a whole, happens to be a field where many of the practitioners emphasize on do not try to explain it, like don't bother to explain it. And the rise of explainable AI and responsible AI and the ability for top tech giants to humble themselves to explain might actually be one of the key success factors that would usher in the actual autonomous revolution in the way I imagine it. Go ahead. So, yeah, tell us a little bit more about the explainable AI phenomenon. So we've had a couple of people on the show that have, have discussed this a little bit and, and some of the various ways that you might try to parse what's happening inside of a neural network. What are the approaches to this that you think are most promising and what do you think will be the biggest effects of it becoming more widespread? Yeah, I mean, I'm spending a lot more of my time myself just, you know, um, helping, you know, individuals and organizations, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, to understand uh, not just bogus words like algorithms, but what 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 happens within a neural network. And the, the rise of explainable AI first jumped at me when I was studying trends in 2018 and working with some Nigerian banks to be able to understand like the value that we really have in artificial intelligence will triple with the consumers, decision makers, business owners, if we're able to explain what goes on within the algorithms that we're setting up. So if we were doing a prediction for how sales would grow without you know, trying to just presenting uh, a smart engineer from the IT team to just speak about it. We need to be able to make sure that top decision makers within the organizations have a clear understanding of how this works. What data was it trained on? You know, what is the uh, level of, uh, how, how, how properly distributed is the data? How, how, how versatile is that sample? You know, and, and what kind of, you know, ethical responsibilities did we take when we were either gathering the data or even just making a choice of which data sets to train our algorithms on. And when people begin to hear about things like this, when people know that 
AI practitioners and AI engineers are ready to divulge and discuss which kind of data you know they are training algorithms on, there's a very strong likelihood that you will see more interest, you see more investment from traditional companies. And again, big tech has the responsibility to play here. You know, over years they've had access to data that they are not even proud to talk about that they have. You know, and uh, it would they would have to come down from their high places to say this is the kind of data that we train this on, and that's why it can do this for you. Yeah, well, there there are those issues, and there's also the fact that sometimes the most valuable asset you have is the data. It's it's not the algorithms. You often see people publish papers or open source the code where they don't share the data because getting clean data sets that actually lead to these good results that, that you can train an algorithm on are worth their weight in gold. So I, it seems to me like the incentive problem is also there as well. Yeah, I agree with you. And I say, don't share the data, but share metadata. Share, tell us details about the data. Don't tell us, don't show us the data. Don't, don't reveal that to us, but tell us what the data is about, how far into people's lives this data has gone and, and things like that. How do you determine these behavior cues and you know be able to tell what's going to happen next? I don't know whether you saw the the revelation from um, the Netflix series Social Dilemma. You know, just give people additional confidence not by open sourcing the data, which obviously it's your incentive, but providing information about you know the kind of data that produce the results. Yeah, one one of the stories about Robert Oppenheimer after um, the atom bomb project after World War II, he um, uh, he was one of the founders of the Exploratorium, the big uh, uh, museum, uh, science museum in uh, San Francisco. And one of the key things that he always zeroed in on is he didn't want science to be a mystery. He wanted people to be able to see. Um, how it happened, and so all of the exhibits that they have at this at the the exploratorium are it's very visible what's happening and what's taking place. And as you're talking about this, um, it's not really visible in any uh, AI system to see how the, the gears are turning or anything, and uh, how the data goes in and how it comes back out. Um, and and so there's certain challenges to making. Uh, making the processes understandable. And that, I think, is some of the challenges that we're going to face moving forward here. Um, and so, yeah, if, if I'm looking at um, two CRM products and one of them has AI and one doesn't, and I want to know which one's working better, um, how, how would I demonstrate that? Uh, or uh, is are there some other examples that you can point to that um, would give uh, somebody who wants to purchase an AI package for something. How would you, um, how would you give them the warm fuzzies that they're buying something that actually works and it's not just a fake money machine? Well, that's that's a that's a very that's a very fantastic question. And look, <laughs> it, 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 I've seen I've seen scenarios where people actually go, you know, just saying this is an AI part too that can do yada yada yada, and it's basically just traditional computing on steroids. Nothing, nothing significant. And um, I, I'm not sure I've come through like a guide for buying AI, but I know that um, through Andrew Ning's uh, program where he tries to help organizations uh, determine their AI strategy, he has mentioned that if you particularly are buying this on an enterprise level, you should actually 
you know, have someone on your team who at least can ask the right questions. And some of the right questions will be, you know, what kind of AI powers this solution? So if, if we're looking at a CRM and one says it's AI powered, the other says it's not AI powered, it's just really breaking it down to what's their strategy? What's their data strategy? What, what are, what's really going on? What, what does this do that the other doesn't do? And um, um, how is this cutting down the time that I'm supposed to spend on traditional CRM. And if I can't really identify the critical value, because ultimately with AI, I'm trying to save time, I'm trying to save energy, I'm trying to save costs, you know, and if I can't clearly see where all of that is going on within your solution, I really wouldn't care so much that you slapped the big name artificial intelligence on top of it. And why I've said it that way is that there is no chance that you will tell me that, oh, I built this on a long short-term memory, or I built this on, um, you know, this algorithm or that algorithm. Most times it's proprietary within the organization. So I'm just going to act like a regular user and ask you specific questions on why don't I just buy my traditional CRM if I can save time, save cost, and do things in the split of a second. That leads to another um, question. I, I wrote a, a column a couple of years ago on this this idea that, uh, you know, in the late 1800s, they were trying to figure out how to quantify the the power of an electric motor. And so they, they came up with this idea of horsepower. And so they used the horsepower rating to rate everything. And, um, and, and so is there some sort of a, an equivalency to this where we can, uh, in terms of human intelligence units, that we can rate AI um, by this is... 0.85 uh, equivalent to a human, or uh, this is 2.8, uh, is equal to 2.8 humans, uh, so we can know exactly how smart this AI system is? Is that a dumb well, question? <laughs> well, well, the closest I can see to that was when Microsoft announced um, in 2019 their, um, uh, their translation uh, capabilities and how it's attaining human parity. Uh, they had like a 90, 94.6, I think, you know, I'm not certain of that number right now, uh, of um, uh, near human accuracy in their translation, real-time translation, you know, and then of course, Facebook using LSTMs reported more than uh, 40 billion, I think, simultaneous translations using long short-term memory. So what I have seen is that, um, there are certain variants of um, convolutional neural networks or certain uh, variants of neural networks in general that continue to get closer to human intelligence. And while I'm not certain there is a scale that is universal and similar to what you've discussed, you know, um, many big tech try to describe that human parity uh, scale where they're trying to compare uh, if we are translating from German to French in real time, can we say this is near human accuracy? I think Microsoft already attained that, you know, and uh, several of these um, big tech, Facebook, Google, are using technologies like long shot and memory to make that happen. Yeah, that that's actually sort of an open question in general. I mean, it's it's not 
it's not uncontroversial how exactly you even quantify intelligence between human beings and what exactly it means for one person to be smarter than another. We all kind of know that some people clearly are smarter, but it's it's pretty hard to say exactly where they lie on that scale. And then when you try to do it for crows or for dogs or for dolphins, often you're left just kind of with these vague comparisons. Like this is about equivalent to a five-year-old child. It looks like it can do most of what we would expect a five-year-old child to do, except the language part. And the, the clearest examples and the, and the clearest tests that we can give is just to have humans go head to head with these machines like they did with Gary Kasparov in Deep Blue or uh, the Korean Go player and, and um, uh, Alpha, Alpha Zero's architecture um, or, or some of these translation mechanisms as well. Yeah. I mean, intelligence, uh, smartness, very subjective, right? And it's really, just as you said, quite difficult to be able to uh, measure measure those scales. But um, using using Deep Blue, using AlphaGo and all of that as, as demonstrated, you know, how far AI has gone. But there are some, you know, things to be concerned about around that as well. It's just general that you know, anything that has to do with numbers, computers, we always do better than us with it. Doesn't mean that they've been able to attain, attain our level of intelligence, you know. So uh, when we talk about that, we use them as sort of like opening conversations about the possibilities of what AI can do for us. Uh, but for every smart human in the room, they can tell indeed that this is not um, just to, you know, uh, push aside human intelligence and say, now we found what can supersede or overturn our type of intelligence and, and how we've been able to uh, dominate this planet. Yeah, one, uh, one comparison that a lot of people make is, is they're, um, they're thinking that artificial intelligence is gonna replace humans. And, uh, the, and in general, um, machines don't replace humans. They, re, they, re, they automate tasks out of existence. They don't automate uh, the entire job out of existence. And so it's it's like is this is this wrench that I use to loosen nuts on the on the, in this board here is that is that um, going to replace me? Well, no. It just makes it easier for me to do my job, and that's what most AI is is going to uh, to do. It'll it'll help us uh, perform our jobs naturally. We'll be able to accomplish much more, and and we can do things with fewer people. But it doesn't automate jobs out of existence. And, and so that's one of the big fallacies about uh, the automation era that we're moving into right now. Um, and, and so uh, I, I think there's, there, there's a lot of misconceptions surrounding AI. And, and that's probably, as an evangelist, that's probably one of your biggest challenges is to put it all into perspective. Am I correct on that? You're definitely correct. That's why I was just smiling when you were talking about it because um, every single time when I get to speak to like a company of about 3,000 employees, you know, management is excited that you're telling their people about artificial intelligence. But the session often ends with, am I going to lose my job? You know, and I try to help them really understand, you know, that uh, in my book, the cover of my book actually has like a face and AI face on one side and then my face on the other side. Ultimately, what we're trying to do with artificial intelligence education is to be able to show you which task as a human you should stop focusing on so that machines can take those on and the ones that you need to begin to, to focus uh, uh, more. Um, essentially, what we are telling people is that tasks will be replaced 
non-necessary jobs, and that new vistas of opportunities will open up for humans who continue to retrain themselves and empower themselves and who care enough about learning the inner workings of this technology that is now no longer just an exclusive preserve of computer engineers, but every single person. There is no field of human endeavor that we don't see this impacting as long as it actually is a field that has sufficient data, definitely something is coming for you. So I, I completely agree with both of you. I, th I think fears around automation are, are kind of overblown, but there are a couple of counter arguments that give me pause and I'd like to get your thoughts on them. One is that the pace of change might be rapid enough that it does cause large scale displacement. So if, if the replacement of say long haul truckers takes 35 or 40 years, then I think those people will have time to reskill and retrain. If on the other hand, Tesla figures out how to have these trucks go cross country in four or five years, let's say, and eventually 30 or 40% of the, the trucks on the road are automated. And then shortly thereafter it's 70 or 80%, that could happen quickly enough that a lot of those people are out of work rather suddenly. And the other sort of worry I have is that a lot of the educational infrastructure is not in place to retrain these people. So what is a guy from the Midwest who spent 25 years as a trucker going to do when his job has been automated away? And there's just, there, there are no more trucks for a human to drive or not nearly as many. So what do you think about those two particular things? I mean, I am, I am totally aligned with you. I'm aligned with you because a part of my work actually advises government on the, the, uh, the importance of reskilling people who are not in college, who are not in like companies that would pay for their reskilling, you know, but who are going to be at the bigger receiving end of this displacement, you know. So I want to see more when they say they've now committed 20% or 30% of the military budget to developing artificial intelligence in the United States. I want to see a good amount of that go to research, but I want to see a very good amount of that going to reskilling and education of, um, you know, uh, people like these truck drivers you talked about. Because essentially, you it is the responsibility of government to be able to do that. And as much as I care about the United States government and um, some of the developed countries doing that real quickly, I'm even more worried for like underdeveloped economies and developing economies, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa, where many of their governments are not even aware of what should be a large-scale national framework for reskilling people or what should be bought from China and what shouldn't be bought. You know, so um, it will be a continuous socioeconomic decision. And there has to be people like you in the room who strongly believe that these large displacements could happen quicker and faster than we have anticipated. Yeah, the the counter argument to the trucking scenario is is that truckers do a lot more than just driving the truck. Um, they're coordinating the load. They're coordinating the security of it. They're they're um, they're figuring out things on where it goes and how it gets uh, how things get loaded and offloaded. Um, there's there's lots of little details that go into that. Now, this this main part of driving across the country on an interstate is is easy. I mean, that's the easy part. It's all these little micro details on. Um, Okay, which dock door does this have to go to, and um, and and how heavy are these things, and 
what kind of team do we need to get this off of the truck? And, um, and so there, there's tons of little details that we haven't figured out yet. And that, that's the same with um, uh, when we're delivering things, right? We're getting things delivered autonomously from Amazon. Uh, Amazon's been struggling with this whole idea of how do we, how do we create drones that can just fly this to some place and it gets delivered? Well, where is it okay to deliver this package? And where can we just, can we just set it on a driveway? Can we put it on a sidewalk? What if it's raining out? What if there's dogs in the yard? Uh, what if somebody wants to try to steal it? Uh, and how long can it stay there? How are these people going to be home in the next two or three days? We don't even know that. Um, and so there's, there's so many um, uh, kind of bigger system things that go into that. And, and that's where, um, where, where we're, I think we're jumping the gun on uh, overstepping what we think automation can do. That, that is true. Uh, I mean, the, I love the I love the perspective. You know, there are other intricacies, and it goes back to the conversation around the fact that it, it's not just a black and white thing. Oh, you just have it all replaced. It's 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 conversations. It's it's studying thirty years of or three hundred years of how this particular profession has been done, and not just assuming that because what is considered on the outside as the heavy lifting part of it is replaceable, and using that as a judge of the fact that the entire role is replaceable, that would be uh, making a very huge mistake. So I, I completely agree with you on that. Yeah, but in the middle of all that, there are some set things that are, are going to be easy to automate, and so we're going to sure. see a lot of breakthroughs in those areas. And uh, and, and so some of those will come through as shocking headlines and say, you know, well, this guy doesn't have to go to work anymore because he's just got replaced by a robot. Oh, OK. Uh, <laughs> well, that's <laughs> one. OK. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I, I think this is it, this is a much more complicated conversation than um, than just throwing out some. Uh, kind of blanket um, ideas and say that we've got it all figured out here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I met a lady just a year ago, yeah, about a year ago, who was my own first flesh and blood touching of somebody who had just been replaced by a bot. She worked for a San Francisco-based agency, and then she just moved back to Texas and went at this birthday party. And I was like, hey, how are you doing? And she was like, I just moved to San Francisco. What happened? Oh, I lost my job because my company just bought a bus to do my work. And I'm like, I, I wanted to say I'm sorry, but I also wanted to say, wow, this is you. This is you are in my statistic, <laughs> right? You know, but I had to be compassionate, you know. But that's my statistics. And I say that I, I see more people in like in marketing communications and you know, all of those things people used to do like by themselves before, you know, getting easily replaced by bots who can basically define their work and uh, am i saying it's correct that that company just let her go when they knew they would be acquiring that i'm working with companies right now to be able to take um some of their talents that they feel will be out of roles because of new technology acquisitions that they'll be making and actually retrain them as software engineers and data scientists to move into new roles and we've actually been seeing quite some success around that yeah talk talk a little bit more about that i'm very interested in that yeah i mean like uh, there's a certain bank for example who basically knew that they're going to be needing less tellers over the next five, 10 years. And, you know, rather than just, you know, setting them out unemployed, they started identifying some of them who maybe even already had computer science degrees, but went on to take these, you know, bank teller jobs because of the situation in the country. 
and now they're retraining them. Most of them totally forgot what they learned in school. And now we're retraining them on data science and uh, retraining them to become software engineers. And um, a good number of that class goes through a series of testing and examination and interviewing with the technology team because the financial services business is gradually turning into a technology company that offers financial services. So there, there needs to expand their technology teams. But rather than just hiring the best guys out there in the industry who are moving from one other tech company and just recycling within the same industry, can we find inert talent within the same organization? Take them through like a one year training, like in chunks of 13 weeks, you know, each and eventually reposition these people to become um, their domain experts that they should be. So this time around, they're even more valuable than those who are coming from another industry because they've done 10 years of banking and now they're software engineers who can recommend uh, appropriate products to the customers. I, I think that's that's a really compelling point because people underestimate how much domain knowledge figures into successfully building software or algorithms. I'm a machine learning engineer, and so all I do all day is build random forests and neural networks to make predictions about things. But quite a lot of my time, 80% of my time on some days goes to just trying to figure out what the data set says, you know, with agricultural data or with customer transaction data, like what, what is all this and what does it mean? What is a sensible result? Uh, you know, what, what qualifies as a sensible result? And, and I had never thought about it until you just said it, but if you are retraining and reskilling people from within the organization, a lot of those hurdles can be jumped right away. They already know what the data sets look like, even if it's only intuitively. And so what they all, all they really need is just sort of the software skills and the coding skills, which are nowhere near as, as advanced as they once were. It's, it's much easier to become a machine learning engineer today than it was 25 or 30 years ago when you had to actually be able to, to tell the CPU what operations to execute. Absolutely. And that's why I'm looking forward to having more organizations who have this kind of mindset, you know, like this bank in my case study, who believe that that is really worth the investment ultimately. And um, again, we need more responsible organizations who just care about people and who know that this change that is happening is not happening because of these people. It's happening to these people as well. And we have to do everything we can as responsible organizations to help them get ready for what is coming. So let's, let's just step 20 years into the future. Uh, the, the term artificial intelligence is no longer used because it's, it's normal intelligence now. It's not artificial anymore. It's just common stuff. Um, what, what job do you see yourself doing? I mean, the need for an evangelist for normal intelligence, what, you don't need that. So what, uh, what, what new role do you take on in this world? I think since I met you, I, I believe that a career in in being a futurist might actually be a better career. <laughs> Excuse me. Because, you know, the future keeps unfolding and right. there are new vistas. Um, the interesting thing I found out about five years ago um, while I was just um, mid, uh, I was at midpoint my Microsoft career was that my, my decision to be able to get into artificial intelligence is, is stemming out of the fact that I am aware that in my lifetime, I could potentially have five to six careers, that the world has changed so much that we can't sort of like cap the way people you say, I'm going to be a doctor my entire life, or I'm going to be a lawyer my entire life. So I could be 
an anthropologist in, in 1520 years, just understanding what new populations will be doing with, you know, the new normal intelligence, you know, and all of that. So I, I'd say we'll leave it to that time yet. What I am confident about is that I will continue to accept new challenges and um, perhaps maybe I'll be able to call myself a futurist at some point. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, I love that answer. Yeah, because we will have futurists 20 years from now. So the, the great thing about talking about the future <laughs> is that there's always more of it. Like we never run out of the future. There's always more. Um, so we, we have covered a lot of ground in this conversation. So I was wondering if I could just get you to give us three to five predictions as to what you think the major impacts of artificial intelligence will be. What do you think the, the five things to look out for are? Ah, uh, well, Again, I'm not. I'm still um, attending my diploma in futurism. You know, observing and watching. You know, Thomas Frey and all of that. So I can't say I'm a good. You know, uh, I'm able to predict real very well. But some of the things that I think would fascinate me more is how artificial intelligence is going to transform education within the next ten years, in terms of being able to uh, design new learning pathways for for people and what we normally do in five years of learning to three to five months, basically determining what is needed for the workplace. So yes, I'm fascinated about how artificial intelligence will transform education. Again, as I said in the beginning, I'm really fascinated about how artificial intelligence is going to impact like auto, uh, the automobile industry, you know, and I see many of these barriers around, you know, um, um, policy and all of that being overcome, at least to a good extent where we will be able to have more semi-autonomous vehicles on our roads, you know, and be able to get that driver assistance that is needed uh, wherever we need. And I feel that ambulances and uh, emergency vehicles might even be some of the earliest, you know, uh, so that people can, you know, actually care more for the patient than, um, you know, trying to focus on what the obstacles are on the road. Um, well, again, I'm also super, super um, excited about recommender systems because I think they make our lives easier. <laughs> and uh, if we're able to sort of like focus more, on, it seems like we can build these algorithms that can know us better than we actually know ourselves. You know, and, and I, I think I'm really, really interested in how all that impacts consumer, um, consumer technologies going forward. Yeah, you probably also are thinking about hyper-individualized healthcare and uh, how we can uh, ap apply the exact right fix at the right time for whatever's wrong with us. And um, yeah, I, w I was uh, encouraged when I saw the report that uh, we we've just had the first uh, example of um, of uh, human longevity being turned backwards, so that we're uh, we've get, we've we have an example now of um, of being able to do that, so that possibly we can we can actually wrestle this idea of human aging to the ground and so we better hurry up because i'm getting a little older here as we, <laughs> we keep talking so um so all, all of these things with the human body and and understanding the human body to kind of to the nth degree uh, i think is um definitely one of the hot spots for ai yeah uh, yeah i i, I actually I'm on the optimistic side, you know, uh, that in the lifetime of my children, we can end diseases and, um, you know, impact some, um, some more on our physiology in a way that it can benefit us. And 
uh, against what many other people think about overpopulation of that, I just feel that uh, there are several other ways we'll be able to solve all those problems and there are indeed other planets to be now. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. So <laughs> in staying with this theme a little bit, what would you recommend to a young person or youngish person? I guess I don't qualify as young anymore, but, but somebody who still has a fair number of, of years of life left and, and wants to be as displaced as little as possible by the advent of artificial intelligence or automation, what are the skills you would recommend they learn? How would you recommend they future-proof their careers and their lives? Yeah, so regardless of what field they find themselves, the World Economic Forum um, identified like 10 skills that are in the, that are emerging. Uh, data science and machine learning were number one and number two on that list. And, and uh, it's been a huge profit center for my business, for example, educating people with short diploma programs, short... Uh, you know, programs on data science and AI, regardless of what field they're in, so that an HR person could learn more about HR analytics and a finance person can learn more about, you know, financial data and someone in medicine can learn about how artificial intelligence is impacting medicine. So I'd say begin with first trying to identify how this amazing technology is going to transform your work, you know, and begin with that. And then later on, if you feel like someone is super interested in programming, or, uh, or software development, you know, for AI, then you can take even a deeper plunge into that. So a lot of it centers around analytics, working with computers, writing code and things like that. What about things like design or interpretation or visualization, things that are more traditionally considered creative skills, but which computers are relatively bad at? Thanks for mentioning that. If you go through the remaining eight skills that the world are coming from actually identifies, UI UX design is actually part of it. So user interfaces and user experiences, which may be intuitive to many more people who are in the arts and humanities, is actually a field that will continue to require a lot of attention because human-computer interaction will continue to get big as a bigger domain, even as we appreciate artificial intelligence and automation. So there's certainly several other fields. Actually, even technology managerial positions will continue to open because humans being still need to be managed as they continue to do this work. You know, so there will still be need uh, for that. But I would say that in bridging, just get yourself sort of to a good, comfortable position where you can have a sweet, simple conversation about these trends. Yeah, well, this is great. I, I love how you're, <clears throat> you're coming at this from so many different angles. Um, I mean, the whole field of artificial intelligence is not just a single, um, uh, a single plant growing in a forest. It's, it's, it, uh, it's permeating our entire society, and it's going to touch every person on planet Earth over the coming years. Um, and and I, I, I find this to be such a... Um, initially it was a, a real narrow topic artificial intelligence now it's becoming such a broad topic um, that uh, we're, we're gonna have to break it up into subsets of AI to to really grasp what all's going on um, this this I think is is not moving forward evenly I mean some areas are naturally going to shoot forward much quicker than others and and that's where um, I, I think it's it's leaving a lot of the the general public in the dust because it's uh, 
we're, we're seeing some headlines that say that AI can figure things out uh, in, in a nanosecond, and um, and it really isn't isn't that smart. I mean, when we hear headlines like um, it's it's winning um, uh, the Jeopardy games or it's it's uh, beating AlphaGo, um, that that gives us the illusion that it's really smart at everything, but it's not. And, and so that's, that's where it's going to take somebody like you to actually sort through and actually make people comfortable with uh, uh, embracing this technology, something that uh, they might be skittish about at the moment. And I agree with you. I, I hope that um, uh, as things begin to get better and travel returns to normal, vaccines move around the world, um, I will be back in my natural zone, like speaking in amphitheaters and in rooms. And there's nothing beats this physical contact and being able to allay the fears of people and answer questions about, you know, this technology that has been rumored to be coming to change their lives. And, and I, I really feel so much fulfillment in being able to help people make sense out of it. And I hope that uh, over the next few years before it becomes normal, you know, I will be able to help thousands, if not millions of people around the world uh, get uh, real value from um, artificial intelligence like they've done with electricity. Yeah. Um now, I'll just give people some background. You and I got to first meet each other in Nigeria, in, in Lagos, in January. And uh, since that time, neither of us has been back to Lagos. And, and for that matter, there's not been a whole lot of international travel happening since then. Um, so um, we, we really haven't spoken much since then. Can you, can you fill me in a little bit on what all you've been up to since, uh, since we last met? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I wanted to return to Lagos in February and in March and in April, but unfortunately, uh, things went the way they went. Um, so since then, I published my book, uh, A to Z of Artificial Intelligence, which is basically 26 business ideas for um, artificial intelligence today, uh, 26 different applications of AI in business today, and um, which you, you graciously really forward for. Um, and then I went on to um, work with um, uh, an oil and gas company, Shell, and two banks, you know, to basically rethink their strategy around um, re-empowering their workforce for artificial intelligence uh, in, the, in the 2020s and going forward. And also, we are in the process of uh, setting up uh, a first uh, center for artificial intelligence in um, one of the universities in Africa, and we're looking to partner with uh, a number of universities here as well. Uh, sometimes in the middle of the year, with a number of people, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to definitely invite you to, to learn more about this work we're doing as well. We founded the American Center for Artificial Intelligence, which is a nonprofit basically to educate small people who normally won't be in the um, who would normally be not be beneficiaries. So I'm talking about underserved communities, you know, on the importance of artificial intelligence and how that can essentially lift them out of whatever cycle of uh, repeated cycle of poverty or crime that they might have been in. So basically that's what I'm looking at building more on in the coming year. And um, uh, that's why I'm 
hopefully going to Africa next week because we have a center that we're trying to equip and get ready. And we'll be partnering with both the academia and industry to be able to make this uh, to make make this happen. So if somebody wants to get in touch with you, how do they go about doing that? And uh, where, where would they buy your book? Yeah, my book is on Amazon, A to Z of Artificial Intelligence by Olu Shola Amusan. Um, I also can be reached at S-O-L-A at amusan.ai. That's, that's my email. And um, again, just a random search. I'm really, really active and my profiles are well optimized on Google. All right. Well, very good. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us uh, on this this podcast here, and uh, we wish you absolutely the very best as uh, uh, you continue your journeys. And uh, I wish you the best flying across the oceans. Uh, my my last trip was uh, a little eventful, so I, I hope it's uh, smooth sailing for you. Uh, I wish yeah. you the best, and uh, and we'll we'll stay in touch in the future for sure. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed every single bit of it. Thank you and good future. (laughs) All right. Thanks. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.